is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The newest Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was sworn in late Saturday. This doesn't end the conversation around sexual assault allegations that his confirmation sparked. Over the weekend, President Trump called accusations against Kavanaugh fabrications. The president has also said this. Well, I say that it's a very scary time for young men in America when you can be guilty of something that you may not be guilty of. Today, we're going to get a different view from a group called Men in the Movement at Colorado State University. Rather than seeing men and women at odds, the group sees men as critical to ending gender-based violence. Carl Olson coordinates the program, and William Rousem is a student member. They're on the line from Fort Collins. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. What's up? Thanks for having us. William, I understand that you got involved in Men in the Movement in part when you were in a fraternity. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the first time I saw Carl kind of give any workshop was at a first-year fraternal men's retreat. Um, He was given uh, just kind of a masculinity um, sexual assault one-on-one presentation. I thought it was a pretty cool topic, and I liked what Carl was doing. And so the next semester, um, I attended one of Men in the Movement's open events. And since then, I was just kind of uh, all in. I was thought it was a really good topic and something I should be involved in. All in? What about it brought you all in? The conversations that we have around masculinity, identity, sexual assault, sexual violence, um, and how men can engage in them have just clicked for me really easily. Um, it you know just makes... Um, really good sense to be involved um, in these conversations, especially holding the identities I do as a you know a white cisgender heterosexual dude. Yeah, Carl, I read that the the goal of men in the movement is to prevent violence by challenging men to create new masculinities. What does that mean, and what what is the message you might bring to places like fraternities? What we're going after is shifting and changing what the traditional view of masculinity is today. That process, I would call, is building healthy masculinities because the way men and boys are taught about what it means to be men today kind of leads to the Kavanaugh hearings and the president saying that kind of stuff. And so we really challenge the men who come to campus at CSU and sort of engage with the program to really rethink the ways that they were brought up as men and boys and do the really, I would say, difficult work for men to sort of shift that within themselves and then impact their peers around them. Give me an example of what you're trying to change in what you think men have been taught. I think one of the things that's key to this process is the ability for men to be vulnerable, not just to ourselves, but with each other. One of the things that constantly comes up when we talk about what it means to be men today is that we're supposed to be stoic or emotionless with the exception of feeling anger. And so we try to challenge the students who engage in the program to practice vulnerability because oftentimes in our lives, it's been literally beat out of us. And so thinking about that as the key to building empathy and humanizing ourselves and thus humanizing others and thus preventing sexual assault because it's really difficult to to rape someone if you recognize their humanity. And that's part of the philosophy of Men in the Movement. So, William, do you remain in a fraternity? Uh, yeah, I took about a year and a half off, but I'm active again in it right now. Okay. And I understand you're going into the construction trades. You're in the construction management program there at CSU? Yep. How does the the work of men in the movement connect to those aspects of your life? Like, is it a culture clash? Is it one 
uh, where you uh, have become something of an evangelist or what? Yeah, I would say the cultures are vastly different, if not almost opposite in times. Just the spaces between the changes men are having, including myself and men in movement, versus the the day-to-day class life of construction management or the, the way chapter meetings are run in fraternities. It's just, yeah, it's vastly different. Give me an example um, of maybe something you've witnessed at a, a fraternity meeting that either has given you pause or prompted you to speak up. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of it's the typical problematic masculine culture where, you know, like a, a presenter from a sorority or something will come in like, they're going to talk about their philanthropy and like invite us to the philanthropy. Um, and it's a woman identified individual who walks into the room and gives a presentation. And then as soon as they leave the room, there would be, you know, side chatter or comments about the presenter's looks or something along those lines. But boys will be boys, won't they? What do you, what do you say to people who, who react that way? <laughs> I think it's, uh, I chuckle initially just because I think it's, it's so foolish to say and believe that, um, because you know, boys well, shouldn't. Just well, we be boys wouldn't. Or... We wouldn't react. We wouldn't react radio friendly. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's why we're struggling with the words here. Like we laugh initially because it's it's crap. Yeah. I wonder, William, if after being involved in men in the movement, if you've looked at your past behavior and thought, you know, I was a jerk when I did that. Absolutely. Um, and that's definitely part of the process, I think, that Carl touched on, too, with uh, building healthy masculinities. Um, a lot of that initial process is taking a look back to what I was doing when I was not aware of these issues. What was I doing when I was ignorant to a lot of the harm I was creating? And, like uh, what? Specific, yeah. So when I first came to college, I was definitely like very involved in the frat culture. But, yeah, I would go to parties um, with the goal of like trying to pick up a woman or try to advance sexually with an individual. And that would be the entire goal of me going out in that night. And it would often also involve alcohol and underage drinking. And so taking a step back and looking now, you know, what were my intentions? Why were my intentions that way? Who are the people around me helping me continue that thought process and what I was trying to do and who were also involved in doing similar things? And why was it problematic? What harm could have been caused? What harm was caused? And I suppose, the, the, the fundamentally, you're not saying that there's anything wrong with the desire to hook up. I mean, I think that's a very natural thing, but I, I think you point to the alcohol there. I think you point to the kind of peer pressure that might be driving that desire into something that could become harmful. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's always an effort to get you know women to drink. Can, can I get you a drink? Can I... Um, just have like show women where that hard alcohol is right away in an effort to loosen them up or um, it's really just coercion into most oftentimes turning the initial rejection into a yes and like that's the way a lot of men have been taught is you know if you get told no initially keep trying you know no doesn't mean no Um, it means try harder it means what else can I do to make this no turn into a yes are more people joining men in the movement at CSU in this environment? Um, it's been about the same for about five years. And my guess in terms of what the barrier is for more men to come in is that there are many, many men who are good. There are tons of men who don't like 
view women as objects or have sexually assaulted anyone in their lives. There's way more of those kinds of men than there are men who have perpetrated sexual assault. And I think the barrier is that they think that that's good enough and won't go that extra step to actually work against what is happening, right? So the problem is that that maintains the status quo. So we need more men to like take that extra step to engage in the conversation opposed to just saying, you know what, I am a good guy. I don't sexually assault people. I'm good. I want to have you respond to what the president has said about this being a very scary time for young men. Statistics show that the prevalence of false reporting on sexual assault is between about 2 and 10 percent. Is this a scary time for young men? I think it's scary for a certain type of dude. I have confidence that my men in the movement guys aren't scared because they're not going to rape. They understand what consent means and how it works. And so it's interesting to parse out the type of man who is scared in this time. And to me, it's hard to think that it's not a good thing, because if you're scared, then maybe you'll be more careful about your actions. What I have a hard time with, specifically um, President Trump saying that, is he's saying that as if there's consequences for men who are accused. And we see it. We have two examples now of the president who's been accused by, I don't know, 19, what is it, 20 women, something like that, and Judge Kavanaugh by at least three that we know of. Um, and so to say that... And, and I just it, underscore that these are all in the realm of accusation and not charges or convictions. Right. And men in the movement believe survivors. And I think that's kind of the, the way we go off of and talk about these kind of things. I think men who are scared equate false accusations with being found not guilty, right? Just because someone doesn't go all the way to court or just because someone doesn't go through an official process doesn't mean it's a false accusation. A false accusation is when it gets through the process all the way to a court um, and it was it's found to be false. Does that make sense? I don't know if I it, it, No, it, it does. I, it does make sense. I'm interested how, in how you answer this question, William, about, as the president says, this being a very scary time for young men. And I'll just interject that the the count is uh, at least 22 women who have accused the president of sexual misconduct dating back to the 70s. But go, go ahead, uh, William. Yeah, I think their thought and reaction that men should be afraid is BS to a certain point. But I can also understand how they, certain men could be scared. I and mean, those certain men probably should be scared because they're also probably perpetrators. Because, yeah, we, we know statistically, as you said, that the false reports of sexual assault are like so, so low. And Trump and other people have just kind of made it seem that hundreds of thousands of men are being falsely accused like every second of every day. I wonder if you, uh, as we wrap up here, you might give us two or three action items men can take to make the culture for women safer. I do think humility is one of the key values that the men who go to the program walk away with. So an action item related to that is to be humble when listening to women and transgender folks about their stories. And it is incredibly easy to access stories now because we, we as cis men have been given this enormous gift that is the Me Too movement. I wonder if you struggle with your own fears that this could just become one more example of sort of men as the knight in shining armor, you know, rescuing the damsel in distress. Is there something fundamentally about this conversation that implies in any way that, you know, women can't help themselves? I think that's a great question. And I think that's why one of the leading 
sort of values that I think about is humility, because if you approach engaging in gender-based violence conversations with the angle of humility, it's really difficult to get into the, I'm going to be the knight in shining armor, armor here. So once you begin to understand fully the roles of men in addressing patriarchy and sexual violence, you start to see that there is absolutely an avenue for us to engage where we're not saving the conversation. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Carl Olson leads Men in the Movement at Colorado State University, which works to end gender-based violence. William Rousam is a student member. They joined us from Fort Collins. This election, two of the measures Colorado voters will decide are designed to make redistricting more fair. Amendments Y and Z. Political boundaries and what's at stake with them are the focus of purplish this time. Here is host Sam Brash. Gerrymandering has become one of the dirtiest words in American politics. It's when people draw congressional or legislative districts to benefit somebody, often themselves. And it takes the blame for a wide range of problems with our democracy. Rigged elections, voiceless minorities, partisan polarization, and no shortage of hurt feelings. My experience on the Reapportionment Commission was... um It's probably the most uh, discouraging experience I've ever had in politics. This is Rob Whitwer, a former Republican state lawmaker. I guess relevant to this topic, I served on the Reapportionment Commission, which redraws the state legislative lines in 2011. This commission formed after the 2010 census. Its job was to draw the boundaries of each legislative district, outlining the voters who'd be served by each Colorado state senator and representative. Well, at the beginning of the commission, on the very first day that we met, I read a letter into the record and I asked the other 10 commissioners, let's do it differently this time. Whitwer said, hey, let's not decide on maps with a simple majority. We should all be able to agree here. And at the end of the day, my my plea and my hope was that we could pass a map that would get both Republican votes and Democratic votes, and it would be a consensus outcome. That approach was not accepted by either party. I was asked, you know, what was the reaction when you read that letter? And I think that probably the most descriptive word is crickets. At that point, it becomes a partisan process, so I defaulted to being a Republican member of the commission. What does that mean? Like, what were you advocating for when it came to, you know, fighting for Republican interests on this commission? I mean, the partisans on the on the commission, their job is, is I mean, just to put it bluntly, is to draw a map that's going to elect the most members of their party possible. I mean, that's really what this comes down to. It is purely a play for power. And whichever party has the most votes is going to draw the most favorable map. Whitwer says that's what happened. Democrats submitted maps at the last minute after what he thought was the final deadline. This is after months of process. Big scandal. Denver Post reported on it. Didn't matter. The next day we had a vote. And the single independent on the panel voted with the Democrats to approve the maps. Right away, it was seen as a Republican loss. The new boundaries knocked out some GOP incumbents, and it created more competitive seats where Democrats had a shot of winning. It was almost as though the forces outside the room were so overwhelming that the the personalities inside the room, regardless of how, how much goodwill you had, didn't stand a chance. I mean, there's an enormous amount of pressure, mm-hmm. and that small group of people is at the fulcrum of that pressure. And there really is no outcome other than, at the end of the day, the most partisan outcome because of the way that the current structure is set up. 
This year, Whitwer is behind a pair of ballot measures meant to fix that structure. They're called Amendments Y and Z. Y deals with congressional districts, Z with legislative districts. But they're basically trying to do the same thing. Take the partisanship out of redistricting. So this week on Purplish, we're going to look at how these amendments actually work and why they're so much bigger than limiting partisanship. What they're really about is balancing voters' competing desires, both for power and for community. And spoiler, you probably can't have both. All right, before we move on to what's on the ballot, this year I want to pull in somebody else who was around for the last round of redistricting in 2011. Megan, really, you're the editor of Purplish. Guilty. Um, yep, and you're also an enormous political nerd, just also like guilty. me, which is probably why you assigned me to the legislature. Yep. And I wonder, like, you're here to talk about 2011. Why should people who aren't huge political nerds care about a seven-year-old redistricting fight? So we can turn them into huge political nerds. <laughs> because redistricting is so powerful. It has everything to do with how much of a voice voters have in Washington. So I think one good way to see that is actually to look at places that have been extremely gerrymandered. One example is North Carolina. Federal judges once again ruling North Carolina's congressional districts are unconstitutional. Ruling today. They have a 13-person delegation. Ten of them are Republicans, even though the state's pretty evenly split Republican-Democrat, kind of like Colorado. On the opposite side, you have Maryland. Maryland has been singled out for having some of the most gerrymandered districts in the entire country. There, they have one Republican congressperson out of eight, even though in 2016, something like 37 percent of the House votes were cast for Republicans. So you can see that if districts aren't drawn fairly, the party that loses that process, their voters are likely to have a lot less say in Washington for the next decade. Let's go back to Colorado in 2011, because you were actually covering the redistricting process that Rob Whitwer from earlier was a part of. Exactly. And as a political nerd, I now have to be very clear, uh, Colorado has two processes currently. If you're drawing state legislative districts, there's a commission. That's what Rob was on. If you are drawing congressional districts, that's handled differently. It's actually a bill in the legislature. Lawmakers draw those maps and pass them and the governor signs them. But I got to point out that the legislature referred amendments Y and Z to the ballot this year, which basically means they're going to have almost no role in future redistricting fights. Why would they give up the power to tilt the political playing field? I think, frankly, because they see a giant fight coming in 2021 and they don't know which side is going to be on top for it. Mm. In 2021, we're almost certainly going to get a new congressional district. That means the current map kind of goes out the window. It's blank slate time. And Republicans and Democrats can't count on being in control when that happens. So I think to some degree, they're hedging their bets and taking the process off their plates entirely. Right. And to get a sense of what 2021 might be like if Y and Z don't pass, what was 2011 like? Well, it was a pretty brutal fight. Republicans controlled the House and Democrats controlled the Senate. So from the start, nobody thought anything was going to get passed. I will say they did make an effort. Before the session, House Speaker Frank McNulty, a Republican, stood up and he said that they were forming a bipartisan commission of lawmakers that was going to go around the state, hear from everybody, and work together to draw the map. One of our goals is to take what is always one of the most partisan of issues down at the state capitol 
try and take the heat out of it, take the politics out of it, and do the work of the people. And I'm guessing that didn't happen. Oh, that totally didn't happen. (laughs) When the Republicans and Democrats finally unveiled the map that each side had drawn, they looked totally different, and they didn't get any closer as the process went along. When did you know that it was actually going to break down, this thing was dead in the water? I remember there was a hearing, and there was a state senator from the Eastern Plains, Greg Brophy, who actually started trying to negotiate in public. He said to the leading Democrat on the panel, okay, what if we move the line this way? When you've drawn as many maps as I have, you know you can actually pull that off. Senator Heath, would you be willing to do that? Senator Brophy, right now, this is the map we're presenting we have looked at many And at that point, what you can hear on the tape is that Brophy grabs his computer and his stuff. He slams out of the hearing room. Uh, let's, get this, uh, let's get this map out of this committee. Uh, and let's, uh, and, and he sits have, just fuming in the hallway. I am um, just a little disappointed that uh, there's no willingness to actually work in front of people to draw a map. And that was it. The process was pretty much over. Pretty much. The legislature couldn't agree on a single map, so each side took their map to court, and the Supreme Court picked one that it thought was the best. And this is a point that I like to make about redistricting in Colorado. On the books, it says that our legislature draws congressional districts. Well, for at least 40 years, the Supreme Court has had the final say. So one argument for changing our redistricting process is we don't follow it anyway now. What kind of job did the state Supreme Court do in 2011? Did they decide on a map that gives either party an unfair edge? In both the congressional and the state-level redistricting, they picked Democratic preferred maps. So I think people thought the Democrats had won that process. But if you look at our congressional delegation, it's actually 4-3 Republican, and it's been that way for like eight years. I think on the congressional level, you might be able to say the maps seem to favor incumbents because not a single incumbent Colorado congressperson has been voted out since this map was adopted. Right. What about the state legislature? This is something maybe only you and I care about. But we but care so much. We care so much. I mean, are the state legislative districts, so the state house and the state senate, are they drawn to advantage either one party or the other? Well, I think you can see some of that, especially in the Colorado House, where Democrats hold more seats than they proportionally got votes in the 2016 election. So after covering this whole process, what did you feel like you learned? I had one really big takeaway that I've been thinking about, honestly, for seven years, giant nerd. Um, I went into it thinking that competitive districts are the goal, that that's the good thing, and that drawing lines for any other reason is bad. This is the idea that you want districts where either party could win because then that way voters actually have a chance of making a difference. Exactly. But when you watch this process, you realize it's actually a lot more complicated than that. I mean, why? You said earlier that Congress should should reflect the political views in the country. And I would think that the way you would do that is to draw competitive districts where either party has a chance. And if you draw enough of them, then then Congress will probably end up reflecting the political views of the whole country. But the other way to look at it is that you also want Congress people who are really fighting for the interests of their district. And if there are kind of too many interests lumped into a district, that gets harder. 
you want to be in a congressional district with people who share your concerns so that your congressperson shares them too. Okay, I got it. So it, it's like if you're a voter, it's not just that you want competitive elections. You want to make sure that when whoever it is actually gets to Congress, they're representing your community. And I heard that a lot in 2011. People came to that redistricting panel to tell them who they wanted to be lumped in with and who, for the love of God, keep us away from. For the Southeast counties to be a part of the 5th Congressional District is an injustice. By not putting your mountain communities together in a strong district, that voice becomes slighted. I think God created Denver and Jefferson and uh, Arapahoe counties to keep those folks apart. So everyone kind of just wants a district that's full of people just like them. Yeah, I think a lot of people do, yeah. I mean, I remember there was one woman, she came specifically to ask for competitive districts. Safe districts do not represent all of the people in their districts. And I think that we need to have the representatives represent everybody. But then someone on the panel started pushing back and said, okay, so what if we split your county to do that? And I remember she was like, eh. Huh. Okay, so like when you boil it down, it's that redistricting isn't just about partisans looking for an advantage. It's like a question for voters. Do they want more power in a competitive district or do they want their community, their city, their county, their region, their industry, whatever, to have a single representative who gets who they are and gets where they're coming from. It kind of comes down to a question of priorities if you're a voter. Is your priority that you live in a community where you've got a congressperson who's really focused on your concerns because everybody in this district shares them? Or do you want to live in a district where maybe there are a lot of very different kinds of communities in it, but your congressperson has to fight for their job every couple of years and maybe somebody else new is going to come take it if they can represent your district better? You're listening to Purplish from CPR News. When we come back, Sam will look at amendments Y and Z and how they're supposed to balance the tug of war between community and competitiveness. He'll also try to cheat the proposed system to see if it can stop political operatives who want to drive the lines in their side's favor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's get back to Purplish, our podcast about Colorado's political identity. Today, we're looking at Amendments Y and Z. Voters will decide both ballot measures this election, and together they'd overhaul how political boundaries are drawn in Colorado. Here again is Purplish host Sam Brush. To understand how they work, let's start with how they were first conceived. There are a handful of us who served in the legislature together who still get along. And so I sent an email around just said, hey, let's get together for lunch. This is, again, former Republican Representative Rob Whitwer. We heard from him at the top of the episode about his experience on Colorado's Legislative Reapportionment Committee in 2011. In 2015, he invited some of his old buddies from the state legislature for lunch at an Irish pub in Denver. They weren't all from the same party, but they did share one thing emotional scars and lingering frustration over previous redistricting battles. Bernie was there. Uh, My name is Bernie Busher. Um, I'm a resident of Grand Junction, Colorado. And a Democrat. Served with Rob Whitwer in the uh, State House. We're just getting together because we wanted to catch up on what each of us was doing. Do you guys remember what you ate? I probably probably had a salad. I probably then undercut that with a side order of fries. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I had the salmon Caesar. <laughs> um, and we got 
we got to discussing uh, politics as we always do in pol- policy. And when redistricting came up, I think there was just a, a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Everybody sees what's wrong with it. It's just patently obvious that this is a broken system. How come it hasn't been fixed until now? And, and you know, we're old legislators. We used to serve in the legislature. So it's very easy to say, you know, it isn't as good as when we were there. <laughs> and and how do we make it better? Uh, but we we kind of agreed on five, six, seven principles that would be involved in doing this right. It was these principles that formed the backbone of what's now Y and Z. And they have two overarching goals, prevent partisan gerrymandering and strike a balance between keeping communities together and encouraging competition. So first idea to do that. The commissions ought to have equal representations from unaffiliated. In other words, the panel should have the same number of Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated voters. But we also believe that the decision-making should be done by a supermajority so that you just don't have one person whose vote swings the outcome. The idea was to require a bipartisan compromise, and they decided that compromise should be struck in public, not some back boardroom with a bunch of well-paid politicos. This entire process should be subject to open meetings and open records and as transparent as possible. There should be neutral criteria that don't favor either party. This means the districts should have to conform to city and county lines wherever possible, and they should be compact, not weird, squiggly shapes that don't make any sense. And if the commissioners manage to meet those goals... These commissions should promote the maximum number of competitive districts. So first, respect communities, and then, whenever possible, draw competitive districts. This group of former lawmakers walked out with a plan. It was by no means an easy route onto the ballot. The state Supreme Court shut down a first attempt in 2016, and this year they had to merge it with a competing redistricting proposal from a coalition of progressive groups. Finally, last May, the state legislature referred Y and Z to the ballot. This is Colorado at its best, and I think we've got in front of us a Colorado solution that will soon be a model across the country. And they did it in a pretty surprising way. They voted unanimously to get out of the redistricting business. Who really wants to stand in front of their constituents and say, I support a status quo where uh, the partisans draw the maps and where you, the voter, are, are completely taken out of the equation? And you mentioned earlier that you have no doubt that if this passes, there will be political operatives plotting oh, yeah. to find some, you know, mm-hmm. little way to get an edge. Yep. Do you see any vulnerabilities in the plan? Um, well, if I did, I'm not going to advertise to invite the, <laughs> to invite the operatives to, uh, to, to game the system. But uh, there's the old saying that if you build a better mousetrap, the mice get smarter. Okay, so Rob Whitwer might not be willing to speculate about how somebody could steal the cheese from his proposed newer, fancier mousetrap, but I can. To help me do it, we're going to turn now to Amanda Gonzalez. She's the executive director of Colorado Common Cause. It's a nonpartisan group that supports voter access and trying to make government as representative as possible. And it helped craft amendments Y and Z. So for our conversation, I'm going to be the sneaky political operative 
and look for ways to, to gain a partisan edge. Sound, sound good? Sounds good. You look like every political operative I know. Really? Okay. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you, when I play Monopoly, like, I'm ruthless. Like, I hide money under the board. I rig the bank. I unmortgage properties. I make trades based on future incomes. I'll take kickbacks. Like, <laughs> You're ready I'm, to go. All yeah, right. I'm not a political operative, but in another life, maybe. Um, so my big thought for how to cheat your your system is to get the right people on the commission, people who are my people who I can trust to support my interest and my party. So walk me through it. How, how does this work? Okay. So we're trying to get to four, four, and four. Four Democrats, four Republicans, four unaffiliated voters. Correct. Twelve. Yes. Okay. So Got we're going to have 12 people on our commission. The first step is there's an application that's announced to all of Colorado. Anybody can apply. So even you could fulfill your dream of being on a redistricting commission. There are some requirements, though. You can't be a lobbyist or an elected official or have worked for a political party. Then you got to survive a random lottery. Because in California, they had over 30,000 applicants. So we're just trying to ensure in case something like that happens and we get that much interest in Colorado, that there's sort of manageable pools. This is going to be like people, you know, signing up to go to Hamilton or something. (laughs) Right. High stakes. After that? A panel of three retired judges then evaluate those pools for what's called in the initiative's community criteria. Are you part of your neighborhood association, your PTA? We don't, we don't want people who live in a hobbit hole and don't know anything about the state, right? Next, six of the commissioners would be appointed at random. The other six would be appointed by that same group of retired judges with some advice from legislative leaders. And they're going to do that with a lens for the diversity of the state so that the commission hopefully looks pretty similar to the state of Colorado. Okay, I I mean, as the sneaky political operative here, I mean, is this complicated just to, like, confuse me? Is that the purpose of why it's so complicated? Uh, I'm not going to say that we're trying to confuse you, but we're definitely trying to thwart you because they have to get through a couple different stages of both random chance and nonpartisan selection. It should be pretty difficult to handpick someone. The, this commission, its its records would be open to the public, right? Correct. And the hearings would be open to the public? They would, and they have to be held throughout the state. Okay. This sounds great for me because if it's a public hearing, I could just get all my political operative buddies together and I could be like, go pose as a member of the public, go to this commission, advocate or criticize the map based on our partisan leadings, and maybe you can influence some of the commissioners. Yeah, I mean, that's any public meeting. All different parties have tried to sort of ambush elected officials. And so... I don't think that that ruckus would drown out the rest of Coloradans. But what if rather than trying to approve the maps, I just enact a public campaign or a secretive campaign to scuttle the maps, to to try and get the commission not to succeed and, and looking for ways that it can be deadlocked? What happens then? So the maps are going to start with nonpartisan staff drafting them. There are provisions in the language that selects one of those as a default if nobody can agree. So it sort of incentivizes 
that the commission work towards agreement. Right. Oh, so legislative council. This is a great idea. Legislative council. They're the quiet bureaucrats of the Capitol. They kind of make sure the whole system works, right? They, that's how these people are. Correct. And they and they draw the initial maps. And if the panel can't agree, it reverts back to those? Correct. Okay. Well, let's say hypothetically, I just so happen to know some people in this group. And some of them are just so overworked. They need to get out of Denver. And I have a friend who has a vacation home in Costa Rica. <laughs> and they can take a break and take it easy. And if that gives them the time they need to think about, I don't know, like the right kind of map, this would be a great opportunity. <laughs> so there are, of course, ethics rules that govern uh, okay. Colorado. So there would be that. Uh, I think the next protection around that is that you would also have to get through the commissioners. So if we had a map that was drawn in a way that wasn't very ethical, that there would still be these public hearings, these commissioners that are from all different walks of life and all different parts of Colorado, and the criteria by which they have to draw them. So I think that the shadiness of your Costa Rican vacation map uh -huh. uh, would quickly emerge. Okay, honestly, that's like all the ideas I have. I, I want to put my journalist hat back on, though. I mean, this commission, it has space for the two largest political parties in the state, the Democrats and the Republicans, and then it also has space for unaffiliated voters. Correct. Some people have criticized that as, you know, basically cementing a two-party system into the Constitution. Do you think that's fair? We talked about this a lot as we were working on drafting and, and changing this language. And right now, minority parties are somewhere around 2% of the population of Colorado. And so on a commission of 12 people, even if one of those seats was promised to minority parties, it would over-represent minority parties on the commission. That being said, all of these meetings are open. And so it's my hope that if you're a member of a Green or Libertarian party, that you're still participating in the process by submitting comment and, you know, potentially even submitting maps so that everyone can have a say um, without over-representing any particular party on the commission itself. One thing that uh, strikes me as a journalist, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot following this whole uh, process and seeing the legislature vote for it unanimously is everyone supports this thing. And that makes me nervous because I think that there's some advantage for the existing political class, say, that, that I'm not seeing. D do you worry about that at all? Oh, we had that same freak out and we couldn't unturn anything. So I understand uh, your skepticism, but I actually think it's a pretty good policy and that it's just a result of a diverse group of people coming together and creating a stronger policy because we all had different ideas. Amanda, thank you uh, so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right, one last thing on amendments Y and Z. These ballot measures would change how political lines are drawn within Colorado, but a lot of the money to support them comes from beyond our borders. The effort has raised almost $4 million so far, and half a million of that comes from former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, another half a million from a dark money group called the State Engagement Fund, and several members of the Walton family are also big donors. One notable group that's not on that list is the National Democratic Redistricting 
Working Committee. That's the group run by former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder. It's backing reforms in other states, but it hasn't endorsed YNZ here. And finally, it's worth noting that Colorado isn't the only state trying to change this process. Voters in Utah, Michigan, and Missouri are also considering reforms, and a handful of other states also have efforts in the works. CPR's Sam Brash. Next time, Sam explores how Colorado got to be a purple state in the first place, and whether it's still an accurate title. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. And you can hear it Mondays through Election Day here on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. There's a road sign on the western slope that has stood out to one CPR listener for a long time. I'm Cindy McKee, and I live in Crested Butte, Colorado. I moved from Boulder to the western slope in 2001, so I've been over here 17 years. Ever since I've lived over here, every time I drive to Uray, I wonder, what is a right-to-farm county? It says, welcome to Uray County, right-to-farm county. And I've wondered about that for years. McKee asked us about the sign through Colorado Wonders, in which we look into your questions about the state. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis learned how right-to-farm laws took hold in Colorado when urban areas began butting into ag operations. She also found out who is behind that sign in Uray County and brought Cindy McKee to meet her. McKee and I are in Montrose to meet Barbara Weber. She's retired now, but for decades helped run her family's ranch outside of Ridgeway. She says in the 90s, Ure County was changing really fast as more people visited and moved to the area. We felt like the newcomers needed an education about being in an agricultural community. And that came from the unhappiness of ranchers not having their property rights respected. They would leave gates open. They would let their dogs run in your cattle. They would... Uh, Assume it was public land. Yeah. they. We had one guy went out in our hayfield one day where we were growing a crop, and he and his boy were flying one of them big airplanes. And it's like... <laughs> This is our backyard. In your workplace. Yeah. The state already had a right-to-farm law, but Weber talked with other ranchers about what they wanted specifically for Uray. And the gist of it is, whereas landowners, residents, and visitors must be prepared to temper their urban sensitivities and accept the activities, sights, sounds, and smells of rural Uray County and should be aware of some of the potential conflicts from agricultural rural living. In- like slow-moving farm machinery on highways or the smoke from controlled burns. These are nuisances. And Uray's policy and Colorado state law basically says farming and ranching is allowed to be a nuisance. As long as whatever they're doing is a normal farm thing and it's not unhealthy to the environment, they can do it. These laws haven't really been put to the test much in Uray. But just an hour north in Delta County, a seven-year legal battle turned the right to farm into a rallying cry, while others cried foul. That's the sound of 15,000 hens. Edwin Hotsteller owns this organic, free-range egg operation in Hotchkiss. He also does construction, raises cattle, runs a feed mill. He's owned the land for more than 20 years. He didn't get into the egg business until 2012. His family wanted to try something new, and it makes good money. 
But a group of neighbors took him to court over health concerns, and the judge ordered the operation shut down. I actually probably wouldn't have went on with it if it wouldn't have been for several local guys that said, you can't let this go, it's going to be a bad situation. If you let it go, it'll be cattle next, it'll be something else next. A lot of farmers, ranchers, and community leaders said Hostetler couldn't go down without a fight. If he lost, they feared more farmers would be shut down. Hostetler and the county appealed, and Governor John Hickenlooper's office filed a letter in favor of the farm. We need to have people stand on their own two feet and promote agriculture because people somehow seem to think that we're going to feed the masses with a few chickens in the backyards, and that's not going to work. Hostetler won. But Susan Raymond, the neighbor who led the charge against the chicken operation, wasn't a newbie to the county. Actually, her dad had his land longer than Hostetler. My dad's ashes are up underneath the big cottonwood tree. Raymond moved back to the farm in the 80s to set up her vet clinic and breed horses after her father passed away. When the chickens came in 30 years later, Raymond says the feathers, dust, and stink made her life miserable. But it was also miserable to be the one fighting against the farm. It became a political nightmare, a smear campaign, false narrative about the right to farm. And I kept saying, what about my right to farm? And I think it should be renamed right to harm. It's been used as a sword and not a shield. Where is my protection? She did try to take Hostetler back to court and lost again. Raymond says her only choice now is to sell her land. She says clients stopped using her vet services, that people confronted her in public. And she says it's because her case was framed as a threat to people's right to farm. Rallies and fundraisers for Hostetler were advertised in local papers, and flyers were put up around town. Raymond reads one. In September of 2011, the right to farm came under attack. This could happen to any one of us. Please join us for an informative conference on the right to farm and how to protect yourself. Mace County Fairgrounds. And alfalfa farmer Olin Lund would do it again. He's president of the Farm Bureau, currently running for state Senate. And he was one of the county commissioners that first approved Hostetler's egg operation. Farming creates dust. Farming creates smell. And if every farmer has to be sure that there is no dust, there is no smell, it'll put them out of business. So then there will be no farming. So then where are we? Where are we as a society? These worries aren't just in Colorado. Rusty Remley is with the National Agricultural Law Center. This has been a, a really big deal here in the last year or two, but this is probably easily one of the top 10 questions we get from across the country. He says each state has some version of a right-to-farm law put into place in the 70s and 80s when urban sprawl started to bump into farmland. Remley says the law doesn't do as much to protect farmers as people might think it does. If you're violating environmental laws or anything like that, does nothing. That's not how people on the losing side of these conflicts feel, especially against massive corporate operations more common in the South. But recently, courts have ruled in favor of neighbors who sued the corporation, not the farmer. A jury found Smithfield Foods, the largest pork producer in the world, owed their neighbors more than $450 million in damages for failing to stop smells and other nuisances. And these cases have some states scrambling to try and strengthen their right-to-farm laws. Like that, you got to do something to protect your hay crop. Back in Montrose, Barbara Weber shows me and Cindy McKee her home. She moved to town when her son took over the ranch to this subdivision that was actually once ranch land. Across the street, there's still a sheep farm. 
it's so cool to go out in the morning, get my paper and hear the lambs bawling for their mamas. But they are leasing it until whoever bought it decides to put it in a subdivision. And then we won't hear any of those wonderful sounds anymore, you know. She understands that sometimes farmers and ranchers need to sell. But she hopes her push for Ure to be a right-to-farm county will give those who want to stay in or join the world of agriculture a fighting chance. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Finally today, we have a cool opportunity for a Colorado musician. Maybe you know that each winter we do a big holiday show on stage in front of about a thousand people with many thousands more in Radioland. And this year, we're leaving a space in the lineup open, and it might just be for you or your band. Show us what you've got, and you might land a spot at the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, which tapes in November. Find out how to enter at CPR.org. That's CPR.org. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.